Church, we are in Acts 25, and we know that Paul has been arrested in Jerusalem, and now he's been handed from trial to trial to trial, and we see him now in Caesarea before a new judge who is going to see him, and that is Festus. So I'm going to read for us, beginning in Acts chapter 25 and verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he be summoned to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give, them up to, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray in these moments, bent over our Bibles, mining the depths of Acts 25, that you would show us the beauty and the glory of what it means for a believer to reside in the steadfastness of Christ. That's our home that's where we live. There is power and grace and beauty there. And I pray we would know it and feel it and live it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Paul's been arrested and he is now on his third trial. We've seen him with the Tribune. We've seen him with Felix. Now we see him with Festus. And he's not even done after all of that. He's gonna have another trial next week. So Paul must be feeling absolutely stuck at this point. He's in a place where he just cannot get out. Now, I don't know if you guys have spent much time in Colombia or if you have spent, spent much time on our rivers here. Anybody like to paddleboard or raft down the Congaree, the Saluda, the Broad River? Man, that's something that my family loves to do. Got inflatable stand-up paddleboards. And we do all of the runs, and for a while we were actually doing the zoo run, those rapids there on a stand-up paddleboard. You just put a kid down on the board and hang on for dear life and shoot your way through. And so we did that a few times until a ranger saw us doing that, and they've put up a sign that says, don't do that anymore, please, Gentinos. So you can't do that, and for good reason, because when you get enough water around rapids, you can get these hydraulics or holes. 
And that is a very dangerous thing where if you fall into one of those, it takes the water that's on top and it brings it to the bottom and it churns and even a strong swimmer can be stuck there and drown. It's a very dangerous thing. And that's kind of how the last fourth of the book of Acts reads. Paul is trapped in this whitewater hydraulic. He's been brought to the bottom and he can't get out of this thing. He's stuck here and he feels like he's going to drown in this broken Roman judicial system. And yet, even though he's there, even though he's pinned down, even though he has great trouble and no clear way to get out, he appears to be holding up remarkably well. I mean, he seems sane, he seems ready to make his defense. He seems like he is dealing well with the pressure that is on him, which is impressive to me because I don't deal super well when pressure is on me. I mean, I had the experience this week of trying to return something to the store and mail it back and they aren't accepting it and I'm starting to freak out a little bit. And so Paul's got this huge threshold for stability. I don't have that in my life. And all of us fall somewhere between stability being on death row and stability trying to return something. Everybody's got their threshold by which they can endure stress. But I want to lean into this to explore how he's experiencing this. And when we do that, we're not going to find 10 steps to be more courageous like Paul. Paul would be mortified by that. Instead, we are going to see what are the glories that are ours in Christ. What's available to us as a believer, even when we struggle, even when we suffer, what is available to us in Christ, and more specifically, the enormous benefit of being steadfast in Christ, to enjoy steadfastness in the Lord Jesus Christ. To see that steadiness that comes in Jesus, we first have to have the foil present itself. There's this unsteadiness in our passage. Everybody around Paul is flailing and moving and they are not settled and they're not steadfast. And by watching their unsteadiness, we can see the glory and the brightness of Paul's steadiness shine all the brighter. And so I want us to look at Festus and the Jerusalem leaders and see the comparison between them and Paul. Take Festus, he's a brand new governor, and he is here in Caesarea where he has come to power. If Paul is showing us the steadfastness in Christ, then Festus is showing us flailing for the approval of others. Very different, and it's a striking contrast. So verse one, Festus takes over for Felix. He immediately goes down to Jerusalem. He meets with key leaders there and they are adamant that they want Paul's head. They tell him, this is what we want from you as the new governor. We want Paul, we want his head on a platter. And verse three gets to the heart of it because really they want a favor. They know that Festus is newly appointed. They know he's not yet secure in his power. They know he needs their cooperation. And so they're kind of appealing to this backroom, good old boy, handshake deal. Hey man, all we want from you is Paul's body in the ground. And we will be a happy, healthy constituency. It works because in verse nine, Festus is trying to give them that very favor, but he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. So he's stuck because he can't just let Paul go because that would make his new 
constituency in Jerusalem very angry with him, and so he can't release Paul, nor can he bring Paul back to Jerusalem like they want because that would break uh, Roman law. And when you see Festus kind of torn here, he actually reminds me a lot of Pilate, who is dealing also with an innocent man on his hands because he knows what is right and just and what he should do, but he also has the pull of what is popular and what the crowd wants him to do, and he is torn between those two things. And when we read that, we are reminded of the power of people pleasing, the draw of being wanted, attractive, desired, celebrated by other people, and the pull that it has on our life. It is a great and a terrible force to be anchorless and awash in the tide of what other people think of me and if they even think of me vulnerable to the whims of other people. That's why we have a love-hate relationship with social media because we hate when people don't love us. (laughs) That's the sum of our time before others. Have you felt that, church? Have you felt in your life just that angst to be noticed, to be recognized for a pat on the back or a thank you, for someone to like you or agree with you or celebrate you? Have you felt that devious pull? Of course you have. You're enslaved to it. I'm enslaved to it. And our passage says there is a more excellent way. But first, we watch the Jerusalem meters. If Festus was controlled by pleasing others, then Jerusalem leaders are controlled by hating others, namely the person of Paul himself. Now, I don't want to presume too much, but the way our passage reads, it seems like these leaders have been nursing this grudge for a very long time. I say that because remember that Felix, the last governor, he left Paul in prison for two years trying to do a favor for the Jews. And now Festus shows up and he meets with the leaders and he's only there a couple of days, but immediately they bring up this desire to have Paul tried and to to ambush him and kill him. They want him. Hate is a terrible force. It is a raging fire that cannot be contained. And I'm wondering what it does to a human soul to hold on to this thing for two years. Can you maintain the fire of hatred against another person for two years and it not begin to burn everything else around us? This is a powerful force. It is a terrible force. And I know we're Christians, so we don't really hate anybody, but there are some people we are even thinking of right now that we really, 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 really don't like. And it is a terrible force in our lives. I don't know which is more powerful, the desire to please another person or the power of really, really disliking another person. But I know I've spent enough time in the valley of the shadow of death of both of them to know like you know that they are soul-sucking places to be that end in nothing but regrets. And yet I'll go back to it again and again and again. 
Oh, the human heart is deceitfully wicked, deceptive above all things. Who can master it? Who can know it? And when I'm drawn to those places, I'm reminded of those haunting words from Jeremiah 17 that we used as our confession of sin. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Any of y'all spend some time this week in people pleasing or people hating in the uninhabited salt land? That's a desperate, awful place to be. But take heart, believer. There is a more excellent way. And it's yours and it's mine in Christ. It is the way of abundance. It is the way of life. Because a house that's built on the sand of people pleasing and people hating, when the wind and the waves come, it will come crashing down. But a house built on the rock of Christ will stand forever because Christ himself will stand forever. Paul builds this house on this rock and we get to see three benefits of steadfastness in Christ. He is steadfast in obedience He's steadfast in death. He is steadfast in waiting. And when you see those things, remember that these are gifts of Christ from being in Christ because Christ is the rock and we're just the pretty little house on top. But even so, these benefits are ours. We can have them in Jesus. So think about steadfast in obedience, this first fruit. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I am most sorely tempted to sin, most sorely tempted for selfishness to bend inward on myself when I'm hurting. If I feel like I'm being mistreated by others, if I feel like I'm being mistreated by God, well, then that's an easy reason to spend more time with number one. I gotta look out for me because nobody else is, and those are the places I am most tempted towards selfishness and sin. If you're a brother in Christ and you are remotely close to me and you see me stressed or angry or treated unfairly or anxious about something, you have an open invitation to ask me, where's your heart today? Where are your eyes today? Where's your imagination today? Where are your finances today? Those are the places that I will run to sin because we're wired that way to do those very things. Now, I'm not saying that Paul is sinless here, but smack in the middle of his suffering, he is still talking about striving for humble obedience to the Lord. Isn't that crazy? When he's suffering, he's talking about obeying the Lord. That's so unusual. Look at verse eight. He says, neither against the law of the Jews, that would be the Old Testament moral law, nor against the temple, not even the ceremonial law, nor against Caesar, not even the civil law, Have I committed any offense? Obedience matters in my suffering. Look back at chapter 24, verse 16. When he said in that court case, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. 
when we suffer, obedience can be the first casualty. That's the first thing to go. Like when the ship is going down and you're throwing heavy weight off the thing, obedience is the first thing we chuck off of a sinking boat. And Paul says in Christ, it doesn't have to be. There is power and there is grace to strive for holiness even when we suffer. And when Paul says that, he actually reminds me a lot of Joseph from the Old Testament. Joseph in the book of Genesis who lost everything. He was sold into slavery by his own brothers. He felt abandoned by his family and his friends and maybe even by God. And even so, he would not indulge in adultery with Potiphar's wife. Character matters because Christ matters. And a sign of being steadfast in Christ is to still care about obeying Christ even when I'm anxious, stressed, angry, or suffering. I desire Christ and holiness for him. So there's steadfastness and obedience. Number two, there's steadfastness in death. He says that in verse 11. If I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Now, if you were here last week, you heard it. If you weren't here last week, listen to that sermon. It was all about a believer, not just not being fearful of death, but hoping in death and what God will bring in his perfect, just judgment. So I'm not gonna belabor that point again here, only to say that Hebrews agrees, the book of Hebrews agrees that another sign of being steadfast in Christ is confidence in death. Hebrews 2.15 says, Christ was able to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There is a slavery that comes when I don't know what happens after death and there is a glorious freedom and liberty and levity that comes when I know exactly what's gonna happen after death and Paul gets the gift of the latter. That's steadfastness in Christ. So it comes in obedience. It comes in death. But then third, and this is really unique, and I didn't see this coming, there is steadfastness in waiting. There's steadfastness to be had in waiting. Now, I'm probably not supposed to say this out loud as a pastor and certainly not supposed to say this out loud as a pastor who is preaching through the book of Acts, but I don't love the last quarter of the book of Acts. Like from chapter 21 on that we've been slogging through, I just don't enjoy that portion of my Bible. Isn't that a terrible thing to say? I mean, You can't really say that out loud, but I just did, and it's recorded for all posterity. But that's crazy, because I love the book of Acts. I mean, I love so many elements of this book. I love Pentecost and the power of the Holy Spirit who falls on the church. I love those early descriptions of breaking bread and dedicating ourselves to the apostles' teaching. I love the miracles. I love the resurrections that happen in the book. I love Paul's dramatic conversion. I love watching churches be planted all over the Mediterranean world and led by elders and planting other churches. I love the strategy. I love the drama. I love the thunderous presence of Christ, even though he has ascended to the dimension of heaven. I love the book of Acts until I get to chapter 21 in my Bible reading plan. And then things slow 
way down. Paul is on trial with the tribune. And then Paul is on trial with Felix. And then this week Paul is on trial with Festus. And when y'all show up next week, guess what? Paul's going to be on trial with Agrippa. And so on and so on and so on. And it's hard to stay focused and it's hard to keep caring. This is probably the 50th time I've read the book of Acts, give or take a few. And I think something is just dawning on me at this moment. Maybe that's the point. Maybe there's an inspired reason for making three quarters of the book so killer and one quarter of the book a very slow crawl through trial after trial. Because maybe if I can't relate to the church that's all breaking bread and singing kumbaya together, and I can't relate to performing miracles, and if I can't relate in this season to persecution and martyrdom, or I can't relate to planting a bazillion churches and bearing ginormous kingdom fruit, then surely I can wrap my mind and my heart around what it's like to be in a season of waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Even worse, what if it's a season where it feels like my best years are behind me? When I always have to look back in my Christian life to think about the greatest things I've seen God do or the most exciting things that I've been a part of. Or maybe I feel like I've been put on the shelf for a season. Maybe because it's something I've done, I feel like damaged goods and I just don't know where I fit in the providence of God's plan anymore. It's a long desert of waiting. I'm reading through a biography of a pastor. D.A. Carson wrote it about his dad who worked in Canada in a very hard mission field who was trying to plant a church in French-speaking Canada and nobody cared for him or his ministry and he suffered much. And he writes in his journal entries, especially during a four-year period, these grim and bleak entries. And I read one right before I went to bed last night and it kept me up thinking about it where he said, I have been here for years and I'm lazy and I'm a coward and I don't think I've done any good in this place. Have you been there, believer? You know what it's like to feel like you're on hold or on the sidelines or on the shelf just not doing and being and seeing and experiencing all that God might have for you. But I want you to see this. I want you to watch what God might be doing here. You've got the greatest missionary of all time, the Apostle Paul, who's still young, who still surely has 10 or 20 church plants left in the tank, that if he was free to go, he could go on and do some pretty amazing things and yet he is plucked by the providence of God out of the heights of his fruits and he is put in a never-ending series of trials that surely must have felt like the sidelines and it's as if God is saying 
I've got more work to do in you right now than I have to do through you. There's work to be done. There's kingdom fruit to be done. The world needs Jesus. But Paul, you actually need Jesus too, as much as the world does. So we're just gonna camp out right here in prison year after year after year and the Lord is going to do his work in Paul. That waiting room of providence, that's a secret place. That's a quiet place. That's where God does some of his greatest and best and most beautiful work. And if you are there and you are in Christ, open your hands and receive what God has for you in a season of waiting. These are our benefits in Christ. They're ours. They're lavished upon us. And when I stand on this rock in Christ, I have steadfastness by his power in obedience even when I suffer. I have steadfastness to look death in the face and maybe I'm afraid, but I know where I am going and in whose hands I am held by. And I have this incredible grace in Christ that in this season of waiting, I am his and he is mine and he will have his way with me. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the fruits, the benefits, the gifts, the kindness that comes one after another to a believer who already got the gift of salvation and we don't need or deserve that or anything else, and yet you give benefit upon benefit. I pray that we can find those benefits in hard places when we suffer, when we're persecuted, when we are waiting, we can open our hands and enjoy steadfastness in Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.